Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Tonight, it's the Battle of the Beast. It's the Beast of Bray Road versus the Beast of Jevoudan. We're talking Elkhorn, Wisconsin, and Jevoudan, France. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. everyone and welcome to episode three of season four uh, first off on the bat hear anything no you don't because i have a chair that doesn't squeak anymore uh i finally got my uh secret labs chair so i feel like a real content creator now because you're not like a legit content creator whatever without some sort of fancy smancy office chair so i have one it doesn't squeak it's amazingly comfortable and I like the little pillow. But enough about the chair. Let's get on with what we're talking about tonight in this episode. And it's all about beast uh, werewolves. Maybe. Maybe not. Um, and I'm sure that this this stuff has been covered before on other shows. I bet probably together. Because these two topics, they just go hand in hand. They are the two perfect topics to talk about on the sh- same show. Uh, the Beast of Bray Road, The Beast of Jevoudan, which I think I'm saying correctly. I may not be. Um, I've heard it pronounced a couple of different ways, and I've always thought that that one seemed right, but I could be completely wrong. Uh, so I apologize in advance if it's not. But they're both they they're both just we kind of have the French werewolf tale and the 
what has quickly become, I think, the essential American werewolf sighting and stories of Elkhorn, Wisconsin and the Beast of Bray Road. So we're going to get into both of those tonight, as well as a, a Men in Black encounter and a uh, kind of interesting uh, idea about some black-eyed kids' uh, origins in uh, your small town secrets. And of course, I've got some crazy news stories in local headlines. So I don't have a big intro right now. I got some stuff to talk about at the end of the show, and we'll get to all that. So let's just move along, and I'm going to talk about Elkhorn, Wisconsin first. Hi, folks. My name is Miranda McLaughlin, and I'm the host of All Things Dreams, a podcast dedicated to dream experiences and dream interpretation. Are you curious about dreams but don't have time for all that pesky research? Well, then you're in luck. Because you can leave the research to me and just tune into All Things Dreams, where we discuss loads of different dream experiences, dream themes, and dream topics like sleep paralysis, lucid dreaming, inception dreams, and so much more. Just check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Bye! All right, so this first one is, of course, Elkhorn, Wisconsin, and it is the Beast of Bray Road. And this is uh, kind of a special one a little bit because it's one of the towns mentioned in the theme song. No real rhyme or reason for it. I just needed towns I wanted to throw in there. Actually, I did it for a really early kind of promo before the show came out. And I dug the town readings. So I threw those into the theme song. But just, you know, ideas for episodes I wanted to do at the very beginning. So there will come a time, actually very, very soon where we have done all of the towns in the theme song. And that'll be a big milestone, and I'll let everyone know when that happens. But let's talk about Elkhorn, Wisconsin, and the Beast of Bray Road. Elkhorn is the quintessential small Midwest town. It lies in Wisconsin, north of Chicago and south of Milwaukee. It's the county seat of Walworth County. Around 10,000 or so people go on with their daily lives in this little town. However, in the early 1990s, something emerged from the shadows on the edge of Bray Road. Bray Road is a country road on the outskirts of Elkhorn. It's just to the east of town, just past Interstate 43. The story began in December of 1991, when Linda Godfrey, a cartoonist and a reporter, for the local paper entitled The Week, got a call from another freelance reporter and a part-time bus driver who had heard of a rather odd story about a werewolf that their friend had seen out on Bray Road. It being a slow news period, it was at the end of 1991, it was, you know, December, so it was kind of in that lull between Christmas and New Year's where not a whole lot was going on. She decided to have a look into it. The witness's name was Pat Lester. Lester recounted telling one of the students on her route that she had seen a wolf-like creature with human-like behavior. She had seen the creature on Bray Road almost two years ago. It turned out that the student she told her story to, Doris Gibson, had seen the same thing as well. Pat Lester's daughter, Lori Andrizzi, which is her kind of married name after she got married, had also seen the wolf, but she had gone to the local animal control officer. His name was John Fredrickson. Lori had told John Fredrickson that one night while driving home on Bray Road, she had seen a bipedal wolf creature sitting on the side of the road on its haunches, snacking on some roadkill. Apparently, as she recounted her tale to the officer, some books fell off the shelves in Fredrickson's office, and there didn't seem to be a reasonable explanation for why they would have fallen. So kind of a paranormally ghostly uh, anecdote to that little tale. So this is where it all kind of begins, these two or three uh, witness reports are told to Linda, and she finds out that uh, Lori then went, kind of went to the the animal control officer to get a more reasonable explanation about what this was. But he had 
he had his owns going on with it. So John Frederson would be Linda's next stop. As it turned out, he had a whole file of werewolf sightings. He called it, of course, the werewolf file. The file and the fact that enough people had reported sightings to the authorities prompted the editor of the paper to let Linda take a longer look into the story. Linda decided to go back and have a talk with Doris Gibson, the young student who she said had also seen the creature. Her story is quite interesting. Doris had been driving along Bray Road when she actually felt her left front tire come off the ground. Thinking she had hit something, she pulled over to take a look, but found nothing in the road. It was at that moment she saw a hairy dog-like beast running straight at her, uh, on its hind legs apparently. Doris ran back to her car and sped off. Later that night, while picking up a friend, they both saw the beast out near the road. Did I mention that her uh, this sighting took place on Halloween? Tracks were even found in the snow at some point in 1991. These tracks were not found on Bray Road, but nearby Potter's Road. Sadly, however, there were no pictures or castings taken of the tracks. Sightings started coming in, and Linda kept on reporting them. It wouldn't take long for other local papers and news outlets to pick up the story. And soon, Linda was getting calls from as far away as San Francisco. Linda even ended up writing a screenplay for a movie based off of the experience she had reported. The movie was going to star Mick Fleetwood, the drummer of Fleetwood Mac, as the werewolf. However, after several attempts, the movie never got off the ground. And uh, most of my stuff is coming from her book, The Beast of Bray Road, which I suggest uh, everyone pick up. It's, it's a really great book, chock full of encounters, uh, both big and small, a couple, you know, really small encounters, but a lot of long, detailed stuff from really all over the period. It started in 1991, but she soon found out that stuff was happening in the 80s, stuff was happening in the 70s, all the way back to the 30s, as I'll get into in a little bit. It also has a great kind of section in the middle, which is just history of werewolves. And then she comes back and, you know, just keeps on going with her timeline. There's a whole timeline of events in the back. It is a great book. It'll be in the show notes to link so that everyone can, can pick it up. But let's move on with uh, some more of these accounts. Soon, reports came in from other parts of Wisconsin as well. In 1992, a man named Joe Shackleman recounted a tale his father had told him of seeing the creature that closely matched what Gibson had seen kneeling on the side of the road. Joe's father, Mark Shackleton, worked as a night watchman at St. Coletta. St. Coletta is in nearby Jefferson, Wisconsin. It's a home for the developably mentally handicapped. This is where Rosemary Kennedy spent most of her life after being lobotomized via her father's wishes. Which is a story all in itself, one I've thought about doing for the show, and I might at some point in time if I can find uh, the correct companion for it. Joe was told this story by his father in 1958, but Mark's experience happened in 1936. Mark saw the beast two nights in a row both times at around midnight. The first night he witnessed the creature clawing at the soil in the top of a burial mound. When the thing noticed Mark, it ran off into the woods. He found the marks on top of the burial, burial mound the next day. The next night, Shackleman found the creature again clawing at the same burial mound. This time, it did not turn and run, but stared the man down and even growled what sounded like a word. That word, quote-unquote, was Gadara. Mark told his son he said a quick prayer, and this time the beast walked off into the woods. So that account is really interesting for a lot of reasons. One, you have it just happening at St. Coletta, which is insane. Two, the thing not only growls and makes a noise, but appears to have a voice. Uh, saying a word that may or may not mean something to somebody. But, you know, that, I think it's really one of the only ones in the book 
where uh, a noise is heard coming from the creature. And so, to me, I think that's probably my favorite, my favorite story. And the fact that it matches, like, if you look in the book, there is a drawing of the face of the of this creature, and it does match very much uh, the drawing that Linda made of a uh, Miss Gibson's report. They've, they're very similar, almost almost to a T, really. So, is this a werewolf in the traditional sense? If so, it's been around for a very long time. Coming back to more recent sightings, in 1992, a young man named Tom Bircha was driving a friend to a Jellystone campground in Fort Atkinson. On the way there, Bircha hit something. Thinking he had hit a mailbox, he got out to investigate. He soon came face to face with the beast walking on the side of the road with his arm outreached for him. Tom and his buddy got in the car and sped off and made it to the campsite. On his way back, Tom spotted some highway patrol officers. He let them know what he had saw. He also called the county sheriffs and uh, you know, he made a report about it there as well. Linda confirmed the report and was also told that there had been another report on Highway, highway 106, which is what he was on. He was not on Bray Road at the time, but he was on Highway 106. Someone else had reported something that they thought was a bear. Uh, but I think when the, the Highway Patrol got there, they could find no creature. Then Tom recounted that he had another sighting two months later, once again on Highway 106. Tom and a friend saw the beast strolling through a cornfield. The corn at the time was about six foot tall, and the corn only came up to the creature's shoulders. Over the years, Linda Godfrey has received over a hundred reports that may be attributed to the Beast of Bray Road, and she has embraced this calling, expanding her interest into other cryptids. Reports still come in to her even in the 2000s. In 2006, five witnesses agreed to take a polygraph. Mark Kirschnick saw a creature on the side of the road as he drove by. He pulled over to have a good look at the thing. It looked like a canine standing on its hind legs, hiding behind a downed tree. After a few minutes, he drove off. This happened all the way back in the 80s. Mark passed his polygraph. No deception detected. David and Mary Paglaroni saw the beast while driving down a local road one night. I'm not sure when this happened. I think it happened kind of in the hubbub in the early 90s. Both passed their test. No deception detected. In 2004, Katie Zahn and some friends went looking for the creature. And they found them. That's right. More than one. The group came upon three of the creatures drinking from a creek. Once they were spotted by the things, Katie and her friends hightailed it out of there. Katie also passed the polygraph. No deceptions detected. The only thing I don't like about that is they got Katie, but what about like the two people that she was with? Why didn't they take polygraphs? I think that would have been interesting if they all would have done it. In 2003, Matt Weekly saw a Bigfoot-type creature in a cemetery. He said this hairy creature was uh, standing, had one foot on top of a stone, and was just staring straight at him. He was kind of in the Captain Morgan pose. And uh, he, as well, passed his polygraph test. And he's one of the few that have described uh, the Beast of Bray Road as being a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. But he's not the only one. There have been a couple of reports that have also said that. And like I said, her book is chock full of reports. Uh, one that I just, I, I didn't put in my notes, but I, the more I think about it, the more I want to mention it, is this great story about a guy who, he got picked up by the cops because he had a 9mm concealed in his car and he didn't have like a concealed weapon permit. And he was kind of found on his boss's property that he had been having some issues, issues with. And so in an attempt to make a defense, he was like, oh no, 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 I have this gun uh, as protection from the beast of Bray Road, I'm out here, I'm out here trying to find it to protect everyone. And in order to kind of mount a defense, he had set out, he had sent all of these cards to people, um, asking like, "Hey, did you see the beast? And if you did see the beast, aren't you also carrying out a weapon to protect yourself? Just like I am. Please come to my court to f and uh, help me defend myself." 
obviously I don't think he had anything to do with the Bray Road and he probably was intending to shoot someone but one of the more ingenious ways I think to try to mount a defense uh, using using a cryptid but I didn't want to cannibalize all of the experiences in the book but I think you know it's just a lot of them are here's a creature stalled on the side of the road you know a couple of them are a little bit more intricate that but I think that people people are seeing something but what are they seeing is it simply a bear uh, but on its hind legs which bears can do but uh, they usually do it to try to get something you know, out of a tree or off of you know a ledge they don't really spend a lot of time on their back legs they can't they can kind of walk run short distances and they can kind of you know stand up for a little bit but they can't you know they can't run and charge at cars they can't stalk through cornfields on their hind legs um was it some sort of large dog in the in the late 1980s animal control officer john frederickson again did capture and had to put down a large husky that had attacked two people and this was not far from bray road uh but if that was the case why are we still getting reports after he had this had this dog put down but could it be some other sort of large dog? Um, not a lot of wolves, I believe, in Wisconsin. Every once in a while, I'm sure one pops up. Uh, not a lot of bear either, but, you know, just because the the DNR, the Department of Natural Resources, said there's no bears and says there's no wolves, doesn't, doesn't make it. So, uh, there are a couple of animal sanctuaries in Wisconsin, a couple of kind of big cat sanctuaries, big animal sanctuaries. Could something have escaped from one of those? And if that's the case, then when did it escape and is it supporting some sort of population? Because, like I said, she started getting reports from the 80s, the 70s, back from the 30s. So I don't know if that one, maybe that accounts for some accounts, but not for all of them. Or is it on the more esoteric side? Is it a Sasquatch that people are just saying is a werewolf because they don't want to say Sasquatch? Is it indeed some sort of dogman, like the Michigan Dogman, which uh, I'll get into in a Patreon episode. Talk about that later. Or is it actually a werewolf? Like, is it uh, a cryptid creature, a bipedal wolf that just stalks around? Or is it, you know, someone that turns into a werewolf? I don't know. Does the beast still roam around Elkhorn, Wisconsin? It's hard to tell, but if you find yourself near Elkhorn late at night, I would be wary of the beast of Bray Road. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. How would you like to look 5 years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. All right, before we go uh, too much further, I just want to let everyone know if I'm going a little fast or sound a little jumpy, it's because I'm really hopped up on coffee right now. Normally when I do this, since I record it at night, so everyone's asleep and I don't bug anybody, uh, I take a nap. Like I tried to take a nap at like from like 10 to midnight or something. And uh, I wasn't able to do that because I couldn't fall asleep. So I just decided I'll hop myself up on coffee to be able to stay up. And so here we are. So if this is kind of a jumpy episode, that's why. And I apologize in advance. But let's move on to The Beast of Gévaudan, which is in France. And actually, I did not realize until I started sitting down to research the the true story of the Beast of Gévaudan, that Gévaudan's not actually a town. It's actually a region, or was a region, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, I've known about this story for a long time. There's a movie that seems to have gotten quite obscure over over the years. I used to have it on DVD. It was called Brotherhood of the Wolf, and it was uh, actually a pretty decent movie about the Beast of Gévaudan. And, you know, I had it uh, when I moved to California. I sold all of my DVDs for like 15 bucks at a garage sale. I kept my Blu-rays, but I sold uh, the DVDs, so I don't have it anymore. And I remember like a couple years ago talking about it with some people. And I was like, I should I should try to, I should be able to find that. It's got to be on Blu-ray, right? Nope, couldn't find it on Blu-ray. Then I tried to look on streaming services, no go. Uh, I looked on, you know, iTunes at the time. Nope. And so when this came around, I was like, that's been a couple of years. Let me search again. Still nothing on iTunes. Still nothing streaming. Well, I was able to find that there is a regionless Korean edition of the movie on Blu-ray. Uh, in the original French, French, you know, dub with subtitles and all that. But not what I used to have. And so it's kind of hard to find. But if you've ever seen it or you want to see it, search out... Uh, the Brotherhood of the Wolf, which has a very interesting uh, explanation for the Beast of Gévaudan. But let's, you know, enough enough movie corner, let's talk about uh, the Beast itself. Gévaudan is no longer around, and is actually a small region, or was a small region in France. It was not a town, like I said earlier. It was disbanded in 1790 and dissolved into the Lozère territory. Even though it's gone, its history remains, as well as st of stories of the vicious creature that terrorized the countryside from 1764 to 1767. The creature was known as the Beast of Gévaudan. Wolf attacks and wolves themselves were pretty common in the Gévaudan region. Uh, most of the towns around the time, I think, were even kind of named you know, after wolf-like, you know, lupin and like all of this. So wolves were not a stranger. People settling in the area were pushing out the wolves from their habitat. And this, coupled with not a lot of firepower around to keep the wolves at bay, led to a lot of attacks and a lot of deaths. So many, in fact, that they were hardly newsworthy. That was until the Beast of Gévaudan came to town, or town. The accounts of the creature, which is simply referred to as the Beast, started in 1764, when a woman tending to a herd of cattle was attacked, but she survived. The cattle herder described the thing as like a wolf, yet not a wolf. Some two months later, a 14-year-old sheep herder named Janine Boulet would be the first fatality. That summer, more attacks and killings would be reported by locals. It seemed to mainly target women and the young. However, men were not spared either. 
It was said that the beast would dispatch its victims by ripping off their heads and drinking their blood, and then hauling off with the carcass. Because the attacks were so frequent, there would be close to 100 reports of attacks. Word spread quickly. In fact, this may be one of the first instances of international news. King Louis XV had pretty much outlawed any reporting on things such as politics or the kingdom in general. Because of this, budding newspapers such as the Courier in nearby Avugan flocked toward Gévaudan looking for stories of the beast. From there it spread to Paris, then to England, and so on. As the stories came to the forefront, so did a description of the beast. A complicated one, but a description. It was mostly wolf, but much larger. It had the snout of a pig, but more pointed at the end, or possibly more of a lion mouth. Some descriptions were even more far out, saying that it had the scaly back of a fish and even had horns. Many, however, came to the conclusion that the beast was some sort of large wolf. Um, it had like it also said that it had like a dark stripe down its back, which was a very uh, identifying trait of the creature. Uh, but the summer turned into fall and the fall into winter, and more and more people fell to the beast. By this time, there were murmurs that there may be more than one roaming the countryside. For months now, the beast had ravaged the country, with nothing being done. Then, in the winter of 1764, Louis XV put a large price on the creature's head, more than what most men in France would make in a year. Thousands of wolf hunters and would-be wolf hunters converged on Gévaudan. Troops were also deployed, led by Dragoon Captain Jean-Baptiste Duhamel. Duhamel and his troops tried for the entire winter, but failed to kill the actual beast. Plenty of wolves, but apparently not the one that everyone was after. Even his idea of leaving the remains of dead children out as bait didn't yield the proper results. In February of 1765, a four-day hunt involving close to 20,000 people failed to kill a single wolf, let alone the beast. And I'm wondering if that's because, like, had they just killed off huge amounts of the wolf population and there just weren't enough there to, like, continue hunting? During the hunt, however, a vicar chased what appeared to be the beast into the town of Mazul. The beast got away because everyone in town decided to lock their doors and stay inside. And I, they, I, you know, so good on them, but apparently uh, old Duhamel was not happy with uh, the town, which he kind of, which he called kind of a cowardice act. After that hunt, Duhamel was replaced by famed wolf hunter Jean-Charles Danville. He searched for the beast for three months, but failed to kill even a single wolf. Once again, just because I don't think they were... By, by this point, they'd probably killed every wolf in the region. By this, by this time, the story was starting to lose its luster, and France was slowly becoming the laughingstock of Europe. They were taking a pretty big hit in some of the uh, British newspapers at the time. A lot of jokes made at their uh, expense. After a year of attacks, Duenvol was out, and put in his place was a new hunter-in-chief by the name Francois Antone. Antone would go on to shoot and kill a large wolf on the 21st of September, 1765. The wolf was stuffed and even displayed to the court of Louis XV. However, in December of 1765, two young boys were attacked. They survived, as the older boy was able to fight the beast off. After that, attacks soon started again, and the fear that the beast had not been killed, or perhaps this was another one, started all over again. Attacks would go on through 1766 until the spring of 1767, so we're at almost three years to the day. 
By this time, the court had lost interest. As far as it was concerned, they had their beast. This time, the locals had to take matters into their own hands. A nobleman named Marquis de Apture organized a local hunt. During that hunt, an innkeeper, Jean Chastille, shot and killed another large creature on Mount Moshe. When the beast was stuffed, human remains were found still in its stomach. After this hunt, the attacks and killings seemed to have stopped. Over the three-year period, 40 to 60 victims had been attributed to the beast of Jevoudan. But what was it? Some have chalked it up to nothing more than mass hysteria over normal attacks by wolves. After all, they were no strangers to the countryside. Even the two stuffed specimens could have been altered in their size and appearance, so that was kind of what I think kind of a conspiracy theory of old was that uh, they had never shot the beast in 1765, but it just killed a normal wolf and maybe a couple of normal wolves and stitched some stuff together and made it appear much larger than what it actually was. But, you know, I mean, I think that they were onto something. Like I said, they probably, by 1760, like into a year into it, had probably killed who knows how many wolves. So they're all gone. And then, you know, when they start popping up again, it might be much easier to identify the actual beast among uh, wolves that just aren't there anymore, if that makes any sense. Was it some other animal, not native to France? There were lions and hyenas in France at the time, brought up from Africa. So, like, you know, rich noblemen and stuff would have them brought up as pets, things like that. Uh, even though people were familiar with how male lions looked with full manes, you know, they had probably seen them in illustrations and stuff, uh, probably didn't look exactly what a real lion looked like, but they knew good enough to see an lion. But what about, say, like a female lion? Whenever you think of a lion, you don't think of a female lion. You think of a male lion with a mane and all this, and female lions don't have that. They do have blunt noses. They are bigger than wolves. They, I mean, you know, this thing could have easily have been a female lion. Uh, or maybe a hyena, which has a dark stripe on its back. And I don't know if they're bigger than wolves, though. But they might be just off putting enough to to trigger that this is something else. But then I wonder about that, like, would an escaped wolf wolf as an escaped lion or hyena or something, would it have been able to survive the winter? I don't know if it, like, you know, they don't hibernate, they don't have this, you know, the instinct to do such a thing. So would they indeed hibernate or would they know how to survive that French winter? Uh, or is it possible that they were not escaped? Maybe they were let loose by somebody and taken care of. I don't know. It may have been some sort of dog-wolf hybrid. Depending on the breeds involved, its appearance and size may have just been different enough to stand out amongst most of the wolf population. Or perhaps it was some unknown cryptid. Something similar to England's mysterious black dogs or even a werewolf. Whatever the case may be, the Azure territory seems to be free of the ferocious beast. But keep an eye out. And I've put a couple of pictures of uh, illustrations of the beast of Jevoudan in uh, the on the website. I'll probably throw them up on Instagram like I always do. But take a look at some of the links, some of the sources as well, because there's a lot of just great depictions of this creature from the very mundane and possibly accurate to just the absurd. You know, like, looking at these pictures, there was no wonder nobody knew what they were dealing with because it just, you know, they took whatever wild account they could find and just made it, made it newsworthy and then made a fantastic picture to go about it. But those are the two stories, I think, of some very infamous beast. Uh, the Beast of Bray Road and the Beast of Jevoudan. Which one do I like better? I don't know. I think I think the Beast of Jevoudan is uh, really fascinating because it is just this old lore. You know, one of the first big news stories to break out of the country of origin back in the 1700s. And 
you know, be heard possibly around the world at the time. Um, and to think, you know, so I think there was, and the, there was something actually there. I just don't think we'll ever, we will ever know exactly what it was. But the piece of Bray Road, I think, is still out there. Don't know what it is, but you know, time will tell. I think with the Beast of Bray Road. So that have been that's been our two topics for this episode. Going to take a, a little intermission with some music. I am working on a new track that I hope will be done and ready to go for episode uh, episode 404. But it's not quite there yet. But I hope to have it coming next episode. So let's take a little musical interlude, and of course we'll come back with the local headline. All right, and now on to the local headlines. The first one has been going around, at least the video of it has, so I bet some of you have seen it. Uh, this is from cbsnews.com. Viral video captures bird of prey carrying huge shark-like fish at Myrtle Beach. And this is by Sophie Lewis. Beachgoers in South Carolina experienced Sharknado in real life this week when a massive bird was caught on video flying through the air, carrying what many believed to be a shark in its talons. The video, captured by Tennessee native Ashley White, last week was shared on the Tracking Sharks Twitter account, shows the eagle-like bird flying over Myrtle Beach, carrying its impressive catch as it wiggles and attempts to escape. White tweeted that she took the picture, took the video, from the 17th floor of the building she was staying at. 
the video has racked up tens of millions of views. And even the Asylum, the studio behind the movie Sharknado, tweeted about it. How many of you knew a Sharknado was coming next, it wrote. I guess it's how Sharknado, I don't know that there's a scene in that, I don't know. I've never watched any of the Sharknados, so I don't know. Ed, ooh, this is the name, Ed Pyrachowski, chief meteorologist at WPDE, shared White's footage on Facebook, joking that some thought to be a duo was a condor and a great white shark. Tracking sharks asked his community if it could identify the creatures, and Twitter users have been weighing in all week. Expert guesses poured in, identifying the bird as an osprey and the fish as a ladyfish, not a shark. Others thought the fish might be an Atlantic Spanish mackerel. All three cre creatures can be found in the region. And I have seen the video. That's the whole reason why I went and found this, because it did pop up on Twitter like a bunch of times. I do believe I even commented once that it shouldn't be uh, Sharknadoes that we're worried about. It should be Thunderbirds. This next one uh, just kind of made me giggle. It's from the New York Post. It's written by Zachary Folk. And the headline reads, Oregon man driving stolen car crashes into woman driving another stolen car. Randy Lee Cooper, Christian Nicole Begue, and the Newburgh Dundee Police Department. A police chase in Oregon ended when a driver fleeing authorities in a stolen car crashed into a woman driving another stolen car. The debacle took place Monday when police responded to the report of a stolen Toyota Land Cruiser driving through downtown Newburgh, according to the Newburgh Dundee Police Department. A pursuit ensued and lasted for several blocks until the driver crashed into another car near an intersection. Cops identified the driver of the first car as Randy Lee Cooper of Portland. After taking Cooper into custody, the police realized that the second car was also reported stolen in an unrelated crime three weeks ago. The driver of that car, Christian Nicole Begue, was also found to be under the influence. Cooper was charged with an unauthorized use of a motor vehicle attempting to elude police, assault, and reckless driving. So a short one, but one that really just kind of made me giggle and I had to share it, share it on the show. And the last one here comes from scientifictimes.com, written by Erica P. And this is one of those videos that starts out, one of those headlines that starts out with watch, because there's uh, some videos connected to it. Watch, thousands of Chinese villagers hunt for the mysterious creature that sounded like a dragon's growling in the mountains. Thousands of villagers in uh, Jinzhou, China, said that they heard baffling noises from the mountains. They have flocked to search this mysterious creature that sounds like a dragon's growling. Trending footage emerged online that shows curious villagers swarming to the top of, a, of the mountain in the Jinshu of China's southeastern province, Jinshou. It is where the supposed beast can be heard making the growling noises. Some describe the sound as a dragon growling, while others say it was a tiger's roar. Roadblocks were placed by local officials to stop the locals from gathering while sending a team of experts to investigate the mysterious sound. It's growling. It's growling. Those are the words that can be heard in the footage taken by an onlooker who posted the video online as thousands of locals in the Zishu rushed to the mountain hills after some farmers claim they heard some strange noises. On June 20th, they first heard the strange sound coming from the top of the mountains. In the video, local residents are seen gathering in the area while intensely listening to the low-pitched sound. Some people excited exclaim that they heard the mysterious creature growl. Moreover, the video has also drawn attention to the Chinese social media after some web users claim the sound came from a dragon, but others say it was like a tiger's growl. Local officials of the Jinzhou have dispatched a team of experts to the mountain to look for the mysterious creature in the area that has been making the sound after the video was taken and became viral on the internet. The zoologist revealed that the mysterious sound was coming from a type of small bird called the yellow-legged 
button quail. It's hardly bigger than a sparrow and has a disproportionately loud song. Yellow-legged button quails are unrelated to true quails. They are endemic to the Indian subcontinent, East and Southwest Asia. During the bird's breeding season, the females reportedly utter the booming hoots, which can be heard at a distance as far as 328 feet, 100 meters. They offer food to males during courtship and then leave its eggs to the males for incubation. It only hatches after about 12 days, and then the chicks will follow the male after hatching. The zoologist's conclusion was confirmed by the local residents who had found the animals while they were making noises in the mountains. Lee Fu Koing told Pear Video it hummed twice or three times repeatedly every six or seven minutes. The sound was very deep. I thought it was quite strange as well. Then a dozen of villagers followed to the sound, followed the sound to the cornfield to confirm and chase down the yellow bird with a short tail. Furthermore, the director of the Provincial Wildlife Protection Center, Ran Jinsheng, told reporters that the residents in other areas also heard similar sounds before, but but just not think too much about it. Local officials had detained at least four residents for spreading rumors online that the sound was a dragon's growling. And if you, I will link it in the show notes, of course, and you can go and take a look at the sounds of this bird, or perhaps dragon, you be the judge, it's a bird, uh, did make. And with that, that's going to wrap up this episode's local headlines. All right, so we have two, like we always do most of the time, uh, small town secrets, your small town secrets to share. The first one is from Christina at Huntress Witch on Twitter. She is an artist. She is part of uh, of uh, Straight Up Strange Productions. And she sent me the story of her Men in Black encounter, which reads as such. So my encounter with an MIB was about 15 years ago. I had been researching and interviewing people who had encounters with weird stuff. Aliens, black-eyed kids, ghosts, etc. This all took place in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I lived at the time. I was deep in the research, sitting and interviewing people in person, going to locations, going to special events, etc. I got to see the Star Child Skull in person. It was very strange, but cool. I was compiling info, compiling info to use in a book I wanted to write about experiences in North Carolina. The day the MIB encounter took place was totally ordinary. I left my job at lunchtime to go to the credit union on Hillsborough Street over by NC State University. When I pulled up and parked, it was busy as usual. Parking lot was full. I went inside and waited in line, probably for about 10 minutes since it was busy. Again, normal at the time of day and at that location. It was my turn in line and I went up to the teller to complete my transaction. After I was done, I was walking to leave the bank and I noticed that it had quieted down. Maybe the lunch rush was over, no biggie. I walked out to my car. I had a Ford Focus at the time, no power options, so I had to unlock the door with the key. As I unlocked the door, I glanced up to notice the parking lot was empty, except for my car and another car, which parked in the last spot in the back of the small lot, but within my range of viewing. I got my door open and threw my handbag in the passenger side seat, and I had a feeling that I was being watched. I slowly glanced up at the car again, and I began to notice some things. I then opened my back driver's side door and started moving things around, playing off that I was playing, playing off that I was watching to this other car. I slowly closed the driver's side back door. I was trying to buy time so I could see what was up with the other car. I also felt like I couldn't stop looking at the car. It was an older car, all black. Even the rims were black. It looked as if though they may have been an undercover police car, but older. And it was older, but in really good shape. The windows were tinted so dark that you couldn't see inside. I couldn't tell if someone was in the car. It was backed into the parking lot, the parking spot, and the windshield was even tinted really dark. But it was a regular car otherwise. 
I watched to see if I could notice any movement. I couldn't stop looking. It was like I couldn't just break my stare and drive off. I had to keep looking. I snapped out of it and I started to get into my car when I saw the other driver's side window of that car slowly roll down. At this point, I started to panic. I wanted to get into my car and drive away, but I couldn't. I was frozen. The driver of this car wore a black or dark suit. He had large dark sunglasses on, and he appeared to have a large square jaw. I say he I say this because he appeared to be male. I couldn't make out any other features other than his skin, which was really pale. Pale enough to notice it against all the dark interior of the car, the dark suit, etc. I stared at him, but by this time I was wondering if I was going to have to run or drive out there fast. I started to feel more threatened by his presence. It felt like he was glaring at me. He sat there watching me, as still as stone. The fear I had the fear I had continued to climb, and I could feel my heart beating faster, and I was sweating profusely. He then rolled the window up on his car. I felt as though I could move again, so I, I quickly got into my car, locked the door, and fumbled to get my keys into the ignition. As I looked back out of the spot to drive away, I glanced back at the car, and it was gone. I would have seen him drive out, since I was near the only entrance and exit from that parking lot. I also scanned the street. There was a stoplight at the intersection, and it was busy with traffic. I didn't see that car. I went back to work. I felt weird the rest of the day. I was paranoid the entire way home, worrying if that man would show up again. Even though this happened years ago, I remember it like it was yesterday. It definitely made a mark on me. I don't have any other explanation as to who or what this person was. And that's that's a pretty interesting encounter because it is very men in blacky with the car and the dress and everything. But there is kind of a BEK uh, sprinkling on it with just the feeling of dread just by him looking at her. And speaking of Black Eyed Kids, so the first Patreon uh, exclusive podcast of STS Backroads was about Black Eyed Kids. And Scott, from last episode, who uh, shared an experience, wrote back because I had mentioned Black Eyed Kids on that episode. And uh, he he sent me this nice little tidbit about something that happened in uh, in their neck of the woods that might be either fuel for the Black Eyed Kids' origin or, if not, just kind of an interesting tidbit of history. And so this is what he kind of wrote me in his email. In the early 1900s, Horace Kephart wrote a non-fiction book titled Our Southern Highlands. It's a first-hand account of life in rural Appalachians. Horace tells the story of a town where the female teenagers all had black eyes. Startled by this, he investigated the reason. In a bid to be more attractive to the teen boys in the area, the girls had taken to the juice of the jimson weed to put into their eyes, causing the pupils to dilate to the extreme. My question is, from who did they get that notion to do this in the first place? Cue the, spook, the spooky music. And that is, I mean, it wasn't like, I guess, it's almost like, yeah, black eyes, but it's almost like they tried to give themselves huge anime eyes with big irises to be apparently more attractive to the boys in town. But I thought that was just a really odd bit of history that kind of makes you think. So a little short one, a big long one. That has been your small town secrets for this episode. And I think that'll about do it for most of this episode. And that is episode 4.03. Just a couple of things to end on. If you yourself have a small town secret to share, uh, just wacky history, uh, men in black report, ghost, cryptid, you know, uh, true crime thing, we can get it on the show. You can get at me on social media. So on Facebook and Twitter, both of those are at STScast. Instagram is at STScast.gram. Or you can go to STScast.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the page, the main page there, and there is an email form that you can fill out and you can send me your experience. I can read it on the air. 
Uh, we can come in and do a Skype call, something like that. Or, you know, you might just have like, hey, here's an article about something that happened in my small town, and I can read that on air. There are many ways to do it, many ways to get it to me. Um, so, yeah, that can be done. Just let me know. Let's see. Other things that you can find on, at stscast.com are show notes to every show. So sources and pictures, all that good stuff. You can also find links to the merch store if you want to buy a t-shirt or a coffee mug or a sticker, phone case, all that great stuff. You can also find a link there under the support tab uh, for the Patreon. Or you can go to patreon.com slash stscast. Both of those will get you to the Patreon page and you can sign up there for all sorts of goodies buttons and stickers and access to the music that I make and an ad-free show. And of course, the exclusive STS Backroads podcast can be found there as well. Uh, the first one that we did, of course, was on Black Eyed Kids. And the next one is going to be about the Michigan Dogman sighting. So we're going to get into the DJ that made the song, that kind of sparked everything, the sightings themselves. I'm going to talk about the Gable film and all that great stuff that goes along with the Michigan Dogman story. So kind of a supplemental episode that will go along with this one, kind of a part two to this episode. So if that's something you would like to look into, check out the Patreon and help support the show. All that will go back into the show to help keep it going, to help upgrade it and do all, all sorts of great stuff that we can build off of this show. So I just want to thank, we have a couple of Patreons that got on got on the ball early, almost as soon as I launched it. So I want to say thanks to David Savory and thanks to Jason for signing up for Patreon. Thanks for signing up, guys. And uh, if you want, that's a great way to support the show. Uh, if you can't or don't want to support the show financially, just tell a friend if everyone gets one more person to listen to the show, then the audience automatically doubles. Uh, the be Another way to help support is just get on your podcatcher of choice and leave a five-star rating or a, and or a nice review, and that helps the show float, float ever more to the top to get in front of more ears. And I just want to thank everyone, the Patreons, and everyone that listens for listening. That's been this episode. Uh, until next time... Remember that every town has a secret. What is yours? Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.